Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Dead Celebrity Podcast. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their very core basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. My guest this episode is Amy Castoro, back for her second appearance. Amy is the president and chief executive officer of the Williams Group. For eight years, Amy has specialized in preparing high net worth families for the next generation to successfully transfer family wealth and values for a sustainable legacy. Amy brings more than two decades of experience in developing leadership competence, aligning ambition with purpose, and increasing authentic communication and productivity. Amy's experience with the Walt Disney Company, the Deco Corporation, and Grant Thornton Management Consulting provided her with a strong foundation of leadership and organizations. Thanks for coming back on the show, Amy. Thanks for having me. So the subject of this week's episode is former New York Yankees owner George Steinbrenner. Known simply as The Boss... Steinbrenner ruled the Yankees' roost for 37 years. He was well-known for his hands-on approach to the team and his seemingly fickle decision-making. He famously fired and rehired Billy Martin a total of five times across three managerial stints with the team. Uh, Former Yankees publicity director Harvey Green once told reporters, the first time George fires you, it's very traumatic. The three or four times after that, it's like, great, I've got the rest of the day off. This sort of behavior would normally be considered wildly unacceptable, but seven world championships can sue the great deal of hurt feelings. So a ton of ink has already really been spilled about Steinbrenner's time as an owner. What we're going to concentrate on today is his public, messy, and yet ultimately successful succession process, which offers an interesting counterpoint to the well-ordered yet unsuccessful plan enacted by Lager owners Dr. Jerry Buss, which we've discussed on a previous episode. Even when George Steinbrenner was still in his prime, he often talked about letting the young elephants in the tent. At various times during his tenure, Steinbrenner had his sons, daughters, and in-laws all involved in some aspect of the team, but for the most part, their involvement was more in a cameo role than as sort of an understudy. But as Steinbrenner's health began to noticeably decline around 2003, this opinion changed. Despite remaining somewhat visible and still clearly in charge, Steinbrenner began delegating more responsibility to his executives and began grooming a successor. Over the next few years, son-in-law Steve Swindoll rose to prominence in the Yankees organization, eventually reaching the level of general partner and chairman of Yankee Global Enterprises, LLC. For much of the next four years, Swindoll was the unofficial heir apparent. However, a DUI arrest and his eventual divorce from Steinbrenner's daughter in 2007 effectively took him out of the picture. This turn of events was particularly poorly timed, as 2007 was also the year that Steinbrenner's health really began to take a turn for the worst. With the need for a successor rapidly becoming somewhat of an emergency, Steinbrenner's two sons finally came to the fore. At first, oldest son Hank, 
who had cut his teeth in the family's racehorse breeding business, seemed to be the likely successor, as he, as he imitated George's bombastic style. Hank immediately became a media darling, blasting off criticisms of whomever and whatever happened to be on his mind. Like his dad, Hank was a quote machine, and the media seemed to welcome his ascension. The team, however, suffered, missing the playoffs for the first time in 15 years in 2008. Gradually, younger son Hal, who had himself come up managing the Steinbrenner's family's hotel and hospitality concerns, started to emerge as the favored son. Hank largely dropped off the radar, and Hal began calling all the shots. Eventually, that informal arrangement was codified when Hal was officially named managing general partner in November 2008. The Yankees won the World Series under Hal's stewardship in 2009, and George passed shortly thereafter in 2010. Hank remains involved with the team behind the scenes, but there's no doubt that Hal is now the boss. So Amy, what we have here really looked like a mess, but it seems to have turned out well in the end. So what sort of lessons can advisors learn from the Steinbrenners about the value of flexibility in a succession plan? It's a great question. So often we hear that the succession, plan, succession plans are really driven by dad, and he has a very specific plan on where he wants his kids to fall. Yet these are individuals with individual lives. And so when the role can help be declared by the individual, it often leads to a much better outcome. In this case, it seemed that Hal naturally progressed into what the organization needed at that time, and it worked well. When we're working with families, our focus is always to first have the kid or the next-gen person really start to look at how can they contribute to the family or the business as a whole? How can they belong inside the collective but still be their own person? Yeah, I think uh, a very interesting aspect of this particular story is that the two sons who eventually would end up vying for control didn't really come up in the Yankees organization. You know, like those six boss children in that story of the Lakers all worked for the Lakers and they worked their entire lives there. Like we said, Hank you know, bred racehorses and, and Hal was in hospitality, which is, you know, two very different jobs and two very different skill sets. And yet you know, it turned out that one of them ended up being the right choice and they were prepared in a way to take the reins just in a way that seems a bit left of center from what you would normally think of in sort of grooming a successor. Yeah, it's really great when the next gen can have more runway with the head of the family in whatever business it is, because they're learning how to make decisions. They're learning how to manage people they're learning how to hold their vision and modify that as they need to. The industry in this case didn't actually matter. What mattered was that they had that guidance available to them and and it sounds like they also had the opportunity to make mistakes as they went along. So the sooner these little young elephants can be let under the tent is often the better as long as they can be engaged rather than just observers. That's the key piece. Yeah, it seems like these two guys, I mean, Hal and Hank, were kind of allowed to have their own thing. And they weren't just sitting around waiting on George to go and decide which one of them was going to be the Yankees. I mean, to, to, to get the Yankees at the end. You know, I think it's interesting, this, this, this Steve Swindoll period where, you know, the son-in-law was going to be the one who gets the big asset and, and everyone else in the family was just like totally fine with that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they all had their own things going on and the Yankees, it wasn't their whole life. Yeah, I agree. What we see is that the right talent for what's needed so that the business is actually generating the needs for the role instead of birthright or birth order. 
So in this case, during the Swindoll period, it did seem that he was classified as the right person for the job at the right time. So, you know, not every family is going to be lucky enough to own a baseball team, uh, a horse racing breeder business, and a chain of hotels. So, but there are ways to sort of prepare heirs in, in, in business situations to, without actually having them be necessarily part of exactly the family business. Uh, do you mind sort of expanding on some of the ways that we can sort of get people ready without having them just kind of be in waiting their entire lives to take over? Yeah, I mean, very often philanthropy pays, plays a really big part here. And I think Jennifer, one of the daughters, has a huge role in how the philanthropic and community events even continue to unfold today. Really, it's asking the individual what gets them out of bed in the morning, rather than just assuming that they want to take on a particular role. It's really investigating what do they see as their purpose? Where do they want to have a contribution or where do they want to make an impact? We worked with a family where just frankly, because of birth order, one son went on to run the real estate side of the house and the other younger son went on to run a different aspect of that business. And they didn't really love the roles that they had. Neither one was very excited about what they were doing. And dad was frankly unwilling to leave them the reins because he didn't trust that they were going to fulfill his vision on what they wanted and what he wanted the business to be. So in the long run, what finally happened is the two brothers got together and they sort of shared responsibility across the different businesses and their strengths and weaknesses evened out over time. And then as the business grew, dad felt that he had more confidence in them, more trust, and he was able to let go more of the reins. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point, right? That when we talk about uh, passing on family legacy and keeping the family business around, family legacy doesn't necessarily mean this is our management style that everyone has to use and this is how everyone has to run things. It's just sort of a general series of principles that the company follows, not necessarily like you have to do it just like dad did every day. And I think, you know, with, again, to bring it back to the, the Yankees, we see that, right? Because you, know, you have Hank come in and he's like mini Stein, you know, mini George, right? Mm-hmm. He's sort of yelling and ranting and raving and then it just doesn't work. Because I think a lot of times, you know, in this case, it comes off like a pale imitation of the original, especially when the, the original is such like a towering figure. The, the next version trying to be that can just be like, why are we listening to this kid? This is, we had the real thing. Why well, have this thing? And then the quiet guy from hospitality who knows how to manage people actually turns out to be the right thing, which is the exact opposite of what George Steinbrenner publicly was. Exactly. So um, it, it's, it's kind of funny how, you know, sometimes the family legacy, quote unquote, doesn't necessarily have to be exactly what the founder did. No, and it's usually not that way, even though they try to make it that way. Different times, different generational concerns and different events happening in the world. Technology plays a big role in how things unfold and how things need to be done. And it's not until the next generation can run things their way that they really do take ownership and get excited about coming to work every day. And so another underratedly important thing that that allowed this succession plan to be successful and in comparison to the, the boss plan was that you know, as all these things went wrong and plans changed, George was still alive. Mm-hmm. And we can't underestimate how important that is in maintaining unity and, and getting buy-in from everyone that it's like you can be sure it was exactly what he wanted because he's still there to say, this is exactly what I want. Yeah, absolutely. And for the next generation to have the skills to be able to have those conversations with their father in ways that they really feel heard is incredibly important. Very often in these families where 
the patriarch founded the business or grew the business, his style is much like George Steinbrenner. And really what they end up with often is just a bunch of yeses around them, but the yeses don't mean anything. So it's something that he must have been doing something really well where these next gen kids were willing to step up and say, I want to do it this way. I want to do it that way. So creating a space or an environment where they have the skills to coordinate, to make mistakes, to speak truth to power, and frankly, to make mistakes. It's interesting, like the, you know, what you say, these skills, this ability to to speak up and speak truth to power and, I mean, confront your parents as equals in a way. It's not really something most people are born with. I mean, some people just have that and they were born to be, you know, whatever they're born to be and then they were perfect from the go. But I think the vast majority of people, those are learned or at least conditioned skills. So so even though we don't necessarily know what the, the magic secret sauce that George Steinbrenner used to instill those in his children, what are some examples you've seen or some techniques you've used that your know, families can or advisors can kind of grab onto and sort of sort of like bring those uh, inner feelings out of kids and get them and the parents talking? It's really focusing on what's the vision of what they want to accomplish. And if they can create a shared understanding of what success in that business looks like, then the path to get there can be whatever it is. As long as the matriarch and patriarch are in alignment with the vision that the next gen has, how they get there doesn't really matter. We There's also different kinds of trust. There's like the business side of trust where they have to figure out How are we going to trust each other in business conversations? And then there's relationship trust, the family trust. And what we see in families is they sometimes collapse those domains. So really being able to say, hey, I need to have a business conversation with you, dad, like as an employee to CEO, and then declaring other cases where they need to, I just need to speak to my father here. Can we have a father-son conversation? So being able to declare the domain that they're having these conversations in can sometimes help clarify a lot and pull some of the emotion out. Yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense when family businesses are by their nature a mixture of family and business, which are perhaps the two most volatile things in mm-hmm. most people's lives. <laughs> yeah. So you know, mixing them together is often not the, maybe the best idea, and yet it's kind of the lot that a lot of people find themselves in. Yeah, and being able to really separate those two is really important. We had a situation where there was a a father and his brother who started a business, very successful manufacturing business. They each had a son. One son was the CEO just because of birthright. The other son was working with the CEO on other aspects of the business. The challenge was that the gentleman in the CEO position was a little less qualified for that role than his cousin. Finally, what happened, the cousin said, I'm going to leave the organization because you're not following through on any of my ideas and I'm taking all of my contacts with me. So it really got to the point where the business could have folded. What ultimately happened is they learned how to have conversations so that they could co-design and in a way co-lead the organization and use the strengths and weaknesses of each other. But if they hadn't learned how to have conversations in a safe way, that allowed a natural evolution of a solution to emerge, then the only alternative was for them to split up the business, which was a hundred year old business at the time. These conversations are often also important in just recognizing that there is a problem in the first place. I think a lot of times, you know, when when we look and we're telling these stories in retrospect, it's like, oh, well, this kid got it. You know, we've said a couple of times by birthright. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out, you know, he was doing a terrible job or he wasn't quite right for it. In the moment, he doesn't know that he was not, is not quite right. Maybe like deep down he knows, 
but it takes some getting out of him. You know, yeah. Most people aren't going to have that instant self-awareness to be like, I'm a fraud. What am I doing? No, no, you know. <laughs> and so these conversations are also, it's not just something that, you know, they, they magically knew something was wrong and we, it was just a matter of talking about the solution that everyone would, just didn't want to talk about. Yeah. It was beginning in the conversation of, of the hardest conversation of something is wrong. You know, that's so true. It's like everybody's sitting around the Thanksgiving Day table wearing those big square signs that you see people wearing on the, on the side of the road, really screaming, here's my issue in this family. And yet everybody thinks it's a secret. The same thing happens in family businesses. Everybody keeps sweeping under the rug the obvious, like so-and-so is not showing up for work or so-and-so's um, just trying to be like their dad and hasn't gotten permission to be themselves in the role. So when we can just name what we see that those issues are, that's often all it needs. And just being able to work through those conversations with a shared understanding of the problem can move it forward right there. As advisors, they stand on the outside. And so it's often easiest for them to say what they see. And then that gives the family permission to say, okay, it's time we take a look at this and, and move it forward. So, you know, you think it's, I guess, what you're saying, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, mm -hmm. is that in, the, in these situations, sometimes it's the advisor's role to be the instigator and to throw a little cold water in the family's face to actually get them to open up about these things? I have no doubt about that. And it's, in many cases, the families expect the advisors to be able to look down the horizon and say, here's one of the things that could jeopardize the whole asset here. So in a way, the families are actually expecting them to do that. How to do that for some advisors is a little bit tricky because they feel a little outside of their comfort zone or over their skis. And so sometimes the advisor can just simply say, you know, standing over here, I've worked with a lot of families. I'm seeing that there's some friction here and we have resources to help you deal with that. Sometimes that can be enough to at least start the conversation. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes from, and I mean, I think lawyers are maybe a little further along the lines than financial advisors in this aspect of the relationship. But the, the advisors are kind of pulled in two ways, right? Because ultimately, it's a service industry. And you know, it doesn't seem like a successful way to, to succeed. And the service industry is by confronting and pissing off your clients. <laughs> but you know, ultimately, in this case, if the business is going to go under, or the, you know, it doesn't matter that they're your clients if they lose all their money and right. you're not doing your job. Yeah. So you know, sometimes you, know, you have to realize that it's time, you know, it, as it is the best service you can do to your client, not to appease them, but to actually step in and, and be a part and, and do your job, frankly by helping save this asset instead of just letting it go to pot because you know, we want them to keep smiling at you for another five years. Absolutely. And when they're onboarding a client, they can even set up the relationship that way. They can even say, my job here is to protect your assets. And in some cases, I'm also going to be paying attention to the family dynamics because we know that that plays a big role in how things are going to be going forward. So just by declaring that their role is broader than just managing assets, in a way, they're giving themselves an opportunity to step into those conversations from the get-go. Yeah. And it's also important from the get-go to start to establish that relationship with the next generation. I think mm -hmm. a lot of advisors, especially older advisors, are their dad's advisor. Your, your, your book often looks like yourself, right? That's, that's kind of the old cliche mm -hmm. that advisor's client base looks like them. So mm -hmm. for a lot of advisors, I thought a 65-year-old white dude's. And, you know, that is great, but that maybe doesn't give you the best, you know, you're dealing with a 65-year-old white millionaire is not giving you the best way to prepare a, a millennial, you know, person for, for taking on a job or even, you know, a 40-year-old person who hasn't gotten his shot to take on a job. So you have to have your own individual relationships with those people as well. And I think that takes its own conversation with the client. 
It really does. And, you know, the next generation, yes, they're thinking about the wealth and the money that the advisor's managing, but the advisor can position themselves with that next gen as being a contribution to their life in a different way. In other words, usually the next gen is a bit younger and the advisor has a network that's much broader than their own and they can be an offer to introduce them or help them get where they want to go. But those conversations are different for advisors and some are more comfortable in those than others. But simply asking them, what's important to you? How do you want this wealth to impact your life? How can I be of assistance to you in ways other than just managing money? Talking to them about possibly introducing them to other advisor, other family members that are in their network that could be a good source of reference for them because very often the next gen are looking for peers to be able to work on different projects with. So the advisor positions themselves as a different offer. Yeah, I think that's very important to stress in this whole uh, succession planning offering that the advisor tries to make, right? Because it is a difficult conversation to start, but it pays double dividends in a way, right? Because not only are you doing your best service to help your client, but you're also acting in your own self-interest to not only preserve your client's business, but also to, to bring in these potential new clients and start this new relationship with, with a generation of new clients. And yes, you're benefited from it, but it's, it's not as sinister as it sounds yeah. to say, well, a succession plan is a great way to meet new clients. It's like, well, yes, but it's helping everyone also. It's everyone yeah. benefits. It's not yeah. as mercenary as that kind of makes it sound, but it's good to think about it that way. Completely. And very often that next gen is afraid to look like they don't know what they're talking about. So when dad or mom is in the room with the advisor, they're just nodding their head yes. But if the advisor can somehow manage to have a cup of coffee or meet them for a drink somewhere, they can start laying a different foundation of being able to teach them about the different aspects of financial management, but from a really basic way. The best advice I can give to an advisor here is don't assume they understand really anything about this. Yeah, I mean, I can't, as an estate planning attorney, I mean, for, for us, it always focuses on the death of the client, right? Mm. Um, I just can't tell the number of times that it's like, you know, the, the, the first time the advisor meets the next generation is at the funeral when they show up at a you yeah. know, the shiver or whatever. And it's like, who's this guy? Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, oh yeah, I have all your money. Right. <laughs> you keep it with me. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, you'll want to get to know me. We had a meeting where we invited the advisor to come to the family meeting. And sure enough, she showed up with a binder that was literally, I don't know, 11 inches thick. It was just this massive piece of threatening information. And sure enough, she opened it up and started to go through it and everybody's eyes glazed over. And so we stopped the meeting and we said, okay, gang, this isn't really working. It's not, doesn't look like it's hitting the mark for you. They said, yeah. They said, and we said, so what questions do you have for the advisor? And they were all afraid to raise their hand, except for a spouse who finally raised her hand. And she said, you know what? I have a 401k. Could you help me with that? And somebody said, the advisor said, yeah, absolutely. I'm more than happy to help you with that. And then finally, somebody else in the family raised their hand and they said, well, we'd like to go see a Broadway show in New York. Could you get tickets for that? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. We can get you tickets for that. And so finally, somebody said, you know, I my dad gives me this much money, but I really have no idea what my cost of living is. Could you help me figure that out? And then boom, the meeting just took off with, yeah, here's some buckets to pay attention to. So in talking to the advisor at the end of that, I said, what was your takeaway? And she said, really, that they they trust that the money will always be there. They just don't know what their role is inside of that yet. Yeah. And I think it's also important to, to point out here with the value of this sort of 
group question asking exercise is that a lot of times they're not holding back on asking a question because they're scared. They maybe don't even know to ask that question. Mm-hmm. They don't know that it applies to them. And then when someone else mentions it, it's like, oh my God, of course that. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden, you know, so you kind of can like, it's almost like brainstorming, yeah. a brainstorming session amongst the group. I remember back in high school, whenever before big tests, our teachers would do sort of review sessions after school. Mm-hmm. And so, so I like to go to them sometimes, even if I didn't necessarily feel like I don't need this, I know this stuff. Because it's like, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And somebody else asks a question and you're like, oh God, thank God I can't. I had no idea what that means. Yeah. And so, and so it's like, just, it's just good to just spend that extra half an hour or whatever being like, just let me make sure that no one else is on some different wavelength <laughs> totally and I'm not true. missing something that's huge and obvious that everyone else is, is in on. Totally true. And this is why I'm always telling advisors to have those family meetings because many of them are not sure how to set one up or what they would even talk about. But when they can get the group together to have these conversations, they just sort of roll along on their own. The reason advisors tell me they don't like to have family meetings is because they're afraid they're going to go off the tracks or they're going to find themselves in the deep water too soon. But they can manage that. They can say up front before the family meeting even starts, hey, if this meeting starts to look like we're going into a different direction, I'm just going to pull it back and we're going to stick to the agenda. So they can manage that, again, by naming what it is that they want to have happen in the meeting. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of that fear is a bit ridiculous, right? Because ultimately, it's your job to manage that. Yeah. That, that was always your job. Just right. because you avoided it or you're spooked of doing it doesn't make it any less your job. No. So um, it's one of those things that a lot of people just need to get over and jump in the pool. Like, yeah, when you have a family meeting, people are going to yell at each other because that's what families do. <laughs> you have three family members in a room, they're going to scream at each other eventually. It's, just, it's the way of things. Yeah, and that's so true. That's even without millions of dollars involved. So mm-hmm. you just kind of have to get over that fear of confrontation because just, it just comes with families and realize that your job is to mediate a little bit, not just the numbers guy. Right. And it doesn't have to get to the point where they start screaming at each other. I mean, there that may happen in the meeting, but the advisor who is going to be in charge of making sure the meeting is going well can have a way to say, guys, when this, if this happens, we're going to stop the meeting and bring in outside help if we need it. Because while it's a good thing at some level to have that kind of confrontational conversation happening, at some point it can also take them off the rails and very quickly go into the too deep water. So we're just about running out of time. I think this is a, obviously a, this is a softer topic that it's sort of tough to really nail down a lesson, but I guess we're going to try because that's what we do at the end of every show. <laughs> so like, what's the one, I guess, tip or, or thing that I think advisors need to understand about approaching this succession planning conversation with clients? To really ask the next generation, what role do they see themselves playing in the organization? Rather than it just being a top-down conversation, it's better when it's really including them and they have full reign to say, here's how I see I could be a contribution to the organization. Here's what gets me out of bed in the morning so that they can finally feel safe enough to say, look, I know I'm in line to run this business, but to be perfectly honest, it's not what I want to do. So I would say... Rather than just having the succession plan coming from the top down, make sure you're having those conversations with the next gen and really talking about roles that they can get excited about. Yeah, I can't believe that's a question we didn't even touch on, right? The most important question, do you even want to run this business? Exactly. <laughs> Start there. <laughs> and why? <laughs> if they say yes, say why. And then if they say no, what do you see? What else you could be doing? How can they be a contribution? It doesn't have to be what they were named for right out of the gate. 
So that's all our time for this episode, folks. I'd like to thank our guest, Amy Castor, for coming back on and being once again pretty great. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And uh, that's all. I'll, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.